Welcome to Podcasting the Past with me, your host, Jevin Keyes. Today, I'm lucky to be joined by a former professor of mine, Dr. Anna Claire Amundsen. I'm here today with Professor Dr. Anna Claire Amundsen, a teacher of U.S. history here at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Hello. <laughs> Hi. So I did a little research on you, Dr. or Professor Anson, and I came across something you published a few years back at the University of Montana called The Sentimental Journey, The Immigrant Experience of World War II Era War Brides in Montana. Will you please tell me about this? Yeah, it was my, um, my master's thesis, and I also I wrote a similar paper actually here at Augustana as a student um, for my senior seminar. Um, I guess one of the things that has always been interesting to me as a historian is studying immigration. I guess that's one of my big, I don't know, one of my big topics uh, of, of interest. And um, I was especially interested in the experiences of immigrants who came to the U.S. during a period of very low immigration, where there was a lot of restrictions on immigration. And I kind of keyed in on World War II era war brides, actually, because my grandmother had that experience. She's from England. Um, and so... Um, just kind of, I guess, observing her and um, the way that she adjusted kind of continually to life in South Dakota, this little town in South Dakota where I grew up, I was interested in um, hearing from more of these women and hearing their stories. So that's kind of where I where I came up with the topic, I guess. That's awesome that your grandma sparked this interest in you, would you say that? Yes. Yeah. Um, a lot of the paper was about, or the... the um, the thesis was about this experience of adjusting from, you know, like women that came from, say, London or Paris or Berlin or Tokyo, ended up in middle of nowhere Montana, you know, and it's sort of like, how do you, how do you adjust to that, um, to that experience? Um, that was what I was mostly interested in um, as, I was, as I was writing that paper. Uh, so with your grandma, was she a war bride herself, did she find your grandfather in World War II? How did that kind of work? Yeah, yeah, my grandfather was born and raised in my hometown, Haiti, South Dakota. Um, he had never really left it until he um, entered the army. Then he went all over the country for military training, went to England um, to for the war, and that was where he met my grandmother. Yeah, she was 18 and he was 19 when they got married. That's so cool. Yeah. I story and how that worked out. So then they came back from England after the war mm -hmm. and settled in what? Hitai, South Dakota. Hitai, South Dakota. Yep, it's about 100 miles north of here. Okay, I've never heard of it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not a very I've big town. I've lived in South Dakota my whole life. <laughs> it's, the, um, it's the county seat of Hamlin County. Oh, mm -hmm. interesting. Um, so these women that came over, did they, I know they were kind of young, so mm -hmm. did mm -hmm. they become, I know you said in Montana and South Dakota, did they do farming? Like, what occupations did they kind of, was there a trend? Like most of them do the same, same occupation? Did they kind of branch out? Well, for, this was a, a thing where I think the experiences of women that went to rural areas were different. Um, a lot of these women, of course, ended up settling in cities. They went wherever their husbands went, ultimately. Um, and those women had a lot more opportunities as far as it came, you know, like education, um, different kinds of work that they could do. A lot of these women actually um, specialized in the travel industry. They were like um, travel agents or flight attendants, that kind of thing, because they often had 
like language experience or experience in other countries and that kind of thing. Um, but in this area, in South Dakota and in Montana, most of them were, yeah, most of them helped out on the farm, you know, because farming is kind of a family enterprise. And that was something they had to learn about mostly. Most of them didn't have any experience in this and they had to kind of jump in and figure it out like after they after they got here. Um, a lot of them raised their kids primarily and didn't go back to work until they were older. Um, and so that meant that often they were, you know, in kind of um, minimum wage type jobs. They weren't seen as having a lot of experience because they weren't from here and they hadn't worked here before. Um, but so, yeah, their, their work experience was um, was affected by their immigration for sure, I guess I would say. Um, and, and they often, especially the women that I studied, they often, I don't think, had the kind of opportunities that they might have otherwise had other places. But that was the choice they made, so. So a few questions after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, first, I, I had no idea that a lot of these, like, immigrants would be flight attendants. Mm-hmm. And travel agents, like, that just kind of seems, like, bizarre to me. Like, <laughs> coming from a different country and then, like, wanting to be travel agents in the United States. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, I um, think that was a, it was a thing where the, the industry was growing. So, mm -hmm. you know, people were more affluent and were traveling more. And so it was kind of a niche that these women could get into sometimes. And then also, um, oh, you said the opportunities they had. Do you think if they... Well, they found love, so that you're going to follow love. Right, right. Do you think their opportunities were still better in the United States than they were if they would have stayed overseas in whichever country they were? Yeah, I think they believe that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for example, um, when it comes to England, where my grandmother was from, um, England rationed food for like 10 years after the war. It was, I think it wasn't until the middle 1950s that that ended. Um, so especially when they were arriving in the United States, um, these women saw the U.S. as like, I mean, like paradise, basically. And that's another thing I actually get into in my thesis is this idea of um, after the war, Americans were very concerned about the way that both women and men had changed from their experiences in the war. You know, women were working, um, were often traveling far from home to work. Some of them went into the military, that kind of thing. Men also had this experience of, you know, joining the military, going off to different countries, seeing different things. Um, but so people were concerned about especially the impact on women. After the war, would women want to go back home? Um, you know, would they want to raise kids? That kind of thing. Um, and so these women, I argue, were kind of, a, kind of a symbol to a lot of Americans because they made a lot of news when they came here. They were a symbol to a lot of Americans of the, like the prosperity that existed in the United States, especially as compared to other places. Um, and they were also kind of like a, you know, they were getting married and they were having families. And that was what people were concerned about, is they wanted to see these young people that were all over the world doing all this different stuff and working and earning money. They wanted to see them kind of go back to, you know, the traditional ways of doing things. And so in that way also, these women, I think, were, um, once they came to the U.S., they were kind of hopeful signs for people because it was about, um, you know, marriage and family and that kind of thing. And that was what these people were really focused on. Yeah, this is a time of a change in the United States. Where, mm -hmm. Yes. Especially for women getting out there into the work environment, like more than, I'd say, any time in U.S. history. Yes. Like, yeah, absolutely. And, and like I said, some Americans were a little concerned about, like, how are they going to put that genie back in the bottle after mm -hmm. World War II? 
um, you know, how would they how would they make sure that men could get as many jobs as possible and um, that kind of thing. But so at any rate, um, like I said, I think that these women were um, a symbol to a lot of people about the prosperity of the U.S. after the war and also about, um, you know, kind of a symbol for what the family would become in the in the years following the war. Yeah. Um. What like inspired you to write this? Um, was there a spark in that like interested you in history? Oh yeah, I mean, like I said, it really was um, my older relatives, not just my grandma, but others as well. Um, I was lucky in that my family is from where I came from, so I knew older people growing up who knew even about like my great great grandparents and could tell me stories about them, and I was always kind of interested to see um, how these people that some of them I knew, some of them I didn't, some of them died long before I was born, but. Um, sort of where these people fit into these different stories. That was interesting to me, I guess, as I was as I was starting to study history at first. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think that's what really sparked my interest is is learning about all these different people that I knew and the the different things that they did in their lives. I mean, I had a great grandfather who was a um, ran a grocery store and he sold um, alcohol under the table during Prohibition. Um, you know, I had this grandmother who came from England during the war. Um, all these other people that that kind of stuff is really what sparked my interest. So family heritage. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Like family heritage, like something I really want to dive deeper into as I grow up and am mm -hmm. able to travel. And... Oh yeah, I think you will. Um, you might be interested to find the ways that your your ancestors fit or maybe didn't fit into the <laughs> into the broader stories of U.S. history. Yeah. So your grandfather who sold under the counter alcohol. He was, I'm assuming, on the opposite side of your family? Yes, this is my, my other grandmother's other dad. Yes, and it was in Dempster, South Dakota, which is another town that I'm sure you've never heard of. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> but yeah, but I love how you know, like, you're so much of your history. That just, it's, it's just interesting, like. Yeah, it didn't, um, I didn't realize until actually, until I left South Dakota that that's not as usual as I thought it was. You know, um, I don't know, as I, as I kind of moved around and got to know people, I, I realized that not a lot of people have the same experience that I have of growing up the same place where your parents did and, well, where most of your grandparents did and on and on and on. Um, but so that's, I mean, for me, that's where I got that information from is just that everybody I grew up around knew my family and told me about them. That's so cool. Um, I've also heard that you spoke at a history club here, Augie. Was that upon the subject of war brides or family heritage, or was that upon a different subject? That was a totally different subject, actually. I had um, I had worked on a I worked on a paper as a grad student that is in the publication process now, but it's been going on for a long time about um the college that I went to. I went to Florida State University, which um up until World War II was the Florida State College for Women. It was a women's college, um. And so what I looked at actually was um, these women students who, especially in the 1910s and 1920s, would form um, sort of like secondary families within the college environment. And they would even assign roles like husband, wife, son, daughter, um, that kind of thing. And that even sometimes meant actually um, these students playing male roles in certain ways, like dressing up like men for pictures and that kind of thing. And so um, I guess what my interest was was kind of getting to the bottom of that. <laughs> you know, like what, it was even, it's even a part of sort of Tallahassee folklore that there was this women's college 
sometimes they got a little crazy and some of the women dressed like men and that kind of thing. But so my thought was like, what was this about for these people? This is the Seminoles, right? <laughs> yeah. Though at the time it wasn't, the, they weren't the Seminoles. Yeah. They didn't become the Seminoles until after. But <laughs> I never knew that they first started off as a women's college. Yep. For, I mean, 40 plus years, they were a women's college. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. No, and in fact, the first male graduates in the 40s um, still have diplomas with their names on them that say Florida State College for Women on them. Yeah. <laughs> so these, why do you think these women did this? Well, they were encouraged in their, in their college experience to make it, I mean, to, to create these very close connections um, with other young women who were having the same experiences of leaving home, going to college, that kind of thing, which was not that typical at that time, not as common as it is today. So they were going through something unusual and kind of going through it together, I guess, um, if that makes sense. As far as where the, um, I don't know, where the, the gender play comes from, I guess, I think it is, again, that this environment, women's colleges, especially during that period, were sort of created to be these totally enclosed like totally safe environments. So they felt a lot of um, freedom to experiment with different roles, um, with different, like different ideas about things. Um, you know, even again, different family roles. Sometimes they were husbands or wives or children or whatever. Um, but so I, I think it is entirely a, a it, it's a, I, I don't know why I'm losing the word all of a sudden. Um, it's just a symptom of the environment they were in, that it was very tight-knit, they were expected to be very close, they were very much closed off from the rest of the world around them, and so this was the, this was the environment they created. It was a family-centered environment, and they saw families as they have men and women in them. <laughs> so this might be a stretch, but I don't know if like, this is weird or out there too far, but so since they were only women and exposed to kind of experimenting, as you said, mm -hmm. this kind of lead into... Um, romantic relationships? Did that ever result from this? And kind of. Well, that's a good question, and I guess it's one of those things where um, maybe historians can't always get to the bottom of it, because all that we have is what they wrote down. And I did find a couple of allusions to romantic things, but never anything explicit. So I can't say that they ever. Uh, probably some did, but probably most did not. But it's just not, that might be something that we just don't get to know yeah, <laughs> as historians. Lost history. Yep. I didn't know, like, since, no, there's no men around and right. college is a time I know since I'm in college there. Right. People, you know, do something different than they were, like, accustomed to or. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely think that for, at least for a few of them, there probably was some romantic element. But for most of them, I would say it, it was um, just part of being in this environment. Um, and part of the part of the type of exploring that they thought was appropriate to do at that time. What's like the lasting impact on now Florida State um, from this, these girls in their roles of family? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think that it's. I think the lasting impact of it again is about this question of of community in a university setting. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I mean, what kind of communities are we creating? What purpose do they serve? Um, I definitely think that, well, I, I think now 
you know, say 2019, Florida State has gone pretty far away <laughs> from that old idea, you know, of having a small campus with students that all know each other, kind of like Augustana, actually. Um, geez, I mean, I think that the, the thing with Florida State is that they really tried to shed this past of being a women's college. Um, part of that, I think, is because of the, you know, Florida State now has some, like, athletic ability, that kind of thing. Um, you know, when I, when I think about it, like, University of Florida, for example, Florida State's big rival, um, they mock Florida State by calling them the, the Florida State College for Women, um, that kind of thing. But So I actually think that in the history of Florida State, the College for Women era is, is a little bit um, put off to the side. It's not talked about as much. So I guess I think for me, it was more about trying to kind of figure out this environment and the people that were in it. And yeah, I, I guess I was trying to kind of reclaim a history that I don't think is really talked about too much. It's yeah, not really probably, understood too much. And probably should be like more praise, like know where you came from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, like I said, these, you know, these women students are kind of legends in some ways, but on the other hand, we don't know too much about them. So that was kind of my my approach or my thought as I was working on that paper. I'd be interested, as I'd assume since they're a bigger college, they have sororities. Mm-hmm. So yes, I, they I'd be, I wonder if they, the sororities really look back at this time as like their, how they got their spark, how they mm-hmm. got off and running and they should kind of embrace it and be proud of it. Like look at the sisterhood and now look at us kind of continuing this trend even though now the college is more, have men and women more diversified. I wonder if they kind of celebrate it, being like, this is kind of cool, this is where we came from. Well, I, I would, I think they should. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, a lot of the, not all of the sororities on campus there, but a lot of them date back to that time. So they go from back before Florida State even existed, when it was just a women's college. Um, but, yeah, like I said, I just, I don't get a sense that they that Florida State does incorporate that history too much. Um and that was kind of my, that was my goal. That was your driving point. Yes. Um, probably one last thing. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other works in the making? Any other thoughts, if not, uh, that you have, that you might do in the future? Well, the, the process of academic publishing is, is very complicated. Like I said, I've been working on this women's college thing for a long time. <laughs> it was rejected by one publication and now I'm working with a second one, but the process of rejection took two and a half years, something like that. Um, but so I'm working on those. Um, I'm working on a chapter from my dissertation. Um, so I've got some things kind of percolating, but um, you guys keep me pretty busy here too. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hopefully this summer. <laughs> cool. Well, mm-hmm. thank you for doing this interview yep. with me. It was- a lot of fun. I learned lots. So. Well, thank you. I'm, you're very welcome. I'd like to thank Dr. Amundsen one more time for taking time out of her day to sit down and chat with me. I really hope someday in the future that her Florida State paper gets published. It sounds really cool and intriguing, and I think a lot of people would be interested to know about this. Tune in next time for an interview upon oral history with a surprise guest.